This is Mercy Harper, writer for Research Services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Alma Derricks, founder and managing partner of Rev, to talk about entrepreneurship. Welcome to the podcast, Alma. Hi, Mercy. How are you? Doing well. So a lot of our listeners are all too familiar with the following scenario. You learn about a really cool new way of doing things that would make work easier or more effective or both, and you want to apply that inside your organization. But it's so hard to figure out the how, especially when you know that the last thing most people want to hear about is yet another change. And that's why I'm so glad to have Alma on the podcast today, because she has found ways to spark innovation in places where the kindling for innovation wasn't just sitting there waiting to be lit. So Alma, the first question I wanted to ask you is, why is innovation so difficult in a mature organization? You know, it's interesting, Mercy. You, I think you, you said it. I think change. Change is the real problem. And I think companies, as they mature, really don't embrace change. They embrace um, things that are surefire. They embrace things that are efficient. They, they embrace consistency. And so I think fundamentally, anything that we're talking about with entrepreneurship comes down to the comfort, a company's comfort level, a team's comfort level with embracing change. And so I've learned a great deal of empathy for mature organizations because in some ways they follow a human life cycle. You know, they're young, they're adolescent, they're young adults, and then they get older and they mature and ultimately they have more to lose. And so for the same reasons that human beings are, you know, more conservative when they're 30 than when they're three, companies sort of go through a similar sort of arc. And I think it's unfortunate, but it's, it's, a, it's a part of that cycle to try and be more, um, be more normalized in some way. And all of the entrepreneurial things we're talking about today have a lot to do with shaking things up, whether it's just a small process or it has to do with launching something huge. Um, a great example of that, um, I met a woman who is a product manager at Mattel. And this is a great example of, of how you sort of lose your edge. And it's unfair to look at large companies and decide they're just dinosaurs. They can't learn the same way we look at our parents and go, oh, you don't get it, right? Um, she described an, uh, an incident that they had with an internet influencer. So here's Mattel trying to be forward, trying to you know, embrace social media, embrace influencers. So they hired an influencer to, to do something with Hot Wheels. So in that world, in the influencer world, you don't really dictate much. You just sort of bring them on and give them the toys and then you just let them go. So they had to hope and pray nothing would go wrong. Well, what happened is that this influencer thought that it would be very cool to douse Hot Wheels cars with lighter fluid, set them on fire, and then videotape as he drove the cars around the track until the whole thing just sort of melted into a pile. Now, she admitted, she said, this was the coolest video I've ever seen. It was absolutely amazing to watch these cars sort of <laughs> through loops and all that stuff. It was fantastic. However, comma, you can sort of imagine what the, what the response was from the legal team at Mattel. If one child hurt themselves by burning themselves, you know, trying to do this or burn their house down, God forbid, right? So you've got the situation where, yeah, we want to be hip. We want to be cool. We want to have people do things, but that influencer doesn't have the liability that a mm. Mattel does. And so then 
it resulted in, you know, she almost lost her job. They shut down their influencer program. And now Mattel's kind of pulled back completely after putting a toe in the water mm. in this space. And so it's a great example of just how, you know, these things clash at some point. And when you try to do something new and inventive, you know, it can be too much for a company that has so much on the line. Um, so I think that the reason companies get stuck is that it's just easier. Ultimately, it's easier not to change. At, at least it's easier not to change until it stops working for you, until the world changes around you and you have to, and then you're sort of scrambling to catch up. So it's just this awful cycle of, you know, holding back and then being pushed onto, you know, onto the ledge or off of the ledge. Um, so it just goes around in circles. And, you know, I think what really needs to happen is some sort of consistent uh, environment of change. You're just establishing that within a company so that this is not catching you off guard or, you know, you're sort of blind and, and dumb about what's going on around you too. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I love your example and the idea of, you know, that there is something, you know, to be lost from a little bit of a little bit of experimentation and important to keep that in mind. But with more practice, we get more of a understanding of what the stakes might be and we get better at it. So let's talk about this idea of intrapreneurship. Some folks may not have heard of this word, may not totally understand what it means. So could you tell us a little bit about what entrepreneurship means to you? Sure. Um, and again, I think entrepreneurship fundamentally is about change and about embracing change, about welcoming change. Um, it's really about helping companies uncover new opportunities and sustain this idea of a growth mindset. So it's one thing to just you know, pop off and launch something. But it's another thing to sustain that in the organization. Um, I think you have to think about how you leverage what you have. You know, when you're in a pure, pure startup, when you think about entrepreneurship in a classic sense, there are more degrees of freedom. So in an entrepreneurial setting, you've got the pro and the con of having these things that you either have to leverage or manage mm -hmm. around. So how do you take the resources that you have, the people, the technology, you're sort of looking around and scanning for all of those things. What parts of that can you use and, and use to leverage something new and something revenue producing? Another thing I would say is that there are also levels of entrepreneurship. So I think in some cases you could think about operational improvements. An example of that would be what Zappos did with call centers. You know, they threw out all of the scripts around timers on call centers and rushing people off the phone and flipped it upside down and said, forget the timer, talk to people for an hour if you can. They never talk to us. So, you know, let's talk to them as long as we can and get as much market research as we can. That's entrepreneurship and that's something that moves the needle, but it's not a new business mm -hmm. per se. And so I think um, when it comes to even thinking about how to approach this, you know, you can think about doing things that are relatively modest in that way. That's not, you know, launching Legoland. That is simply taking a new idea and hat making a pitch about how this is going to serve us better that ultimately leads to some kind of savings. That's one sort of level of this. Um, and then, you know, the other pieces of the puzzle when it comes to entrepreneurship are really understanding the brand and, and the tone of voice and the way you go to market. 
Um, I love Spanx as an example of how they've taken something that should be, you know, fairly unspeakable and maybe even embarrassing to take something like shapewear and girdles, essentially, but they've made it fun. They've made it something everybody does. It's very light. You know, that kind of shaping of the way you go to market is also something that is a signature that you could consider entrepreneurial. Um, so I think that, you know, and then all the way out to creating new lines of business. Again, the Legoland idea of going completely to the left. You have this gate, this toy company, and you go all the way to the left and create a resort. I think that's the most exotic, biggest form of it. But I think if you break entrepreneurship down into those component pieces, you can start to see how you can venture out on this ledge bit by bit and start to prove it, earn your credibility. As, as a thought leader in this and get some proof points along the way, as opposed to saying, you know, I have this idea, let's build Disneyland, all five lands and Main Street, you know, and have that be the, an all or nothing to, you know, idea for something that you're looking to launch. Yeah, absolutely. I really like this idea of your, your idea with the levels, you know, we see this word innovation or entrepreneurship and we think, oh, we, you know, that means you have to invent a brand new thing. That's the only way to do it. That's not necessarily the only way. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about are the keys to an entrepreneurial mindset. What kind of skills perhaps and ways of thinking, ways of talking and communicating do you need to kind of cultivate this in yourself? Well, one, you touched on something just a second ago that I think is an important distinction that I think helps demystify this idea of, of entrepreneurship or innovation, that we use the words innovation and invention kind of interchangeably. And there's a really important distinction between the two. Um, invention from whole cloth, things we've never seen before, uh, you know, creating um, the car, creating the airplane, something that's never happened in the history of humankind is relatively rare. Innovation is actually connecting new dots. So Starbucks was an innovative company. They didn't create coffee and they didn't create cafes, but they kind of combined the idea of doing a higher end coffee shop instead of a cart, franchising it like McDonald's. They sort of combined a few different points into something that was new. Um, Haagen-Dazs is another great example. They certainly didn't create ice cream, but they said, let's make premium ice cream. Let's make ice cream that's $8 a pint. Um, and let's give it a name that sounds vaguely European, even though it's not, it's a completely American company. And so I think the first mindset shift, and it was something that you know really spoke to me early on is the idea that you don't have to come up with something the world has never seen before. So that says to me that in terms of mindset and kind of flexing that mind, that you're constantly scanning the environment. You're constantly sort of looking at other sources. You're reading sources outside of your industry. For example, we all get bogged down in whatever, you know, space that we have to learn every day for our day jobs. If you, you know, if you work in software, read things about bakers, you know, or about automotive, because ideas come from those other places, or you see combinations in other places that you can adapt. Um, you might see something internationally. I mean, I know we're all dying to get back out on the road. Um, I know for me, you know, I miss um, um, taking long adventures just out of my context. You might see something there you can adapt. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, there, uh, I remember long before Alamo Draft House blew up here in the U.S. I remember going to pub movie combo things in Europe in the '90s. I mean, it was an idea. It was already an idea that was there. We just hadn't done it yet. No one had ever really quite put those two things right. together. Not having a beer and watching a movie. So there's this scanning thing, and then the third thing I'd say that's really important, um, and this is something from a brand standpoint, from a core brand standpoint that I've always used to help me, especially when I'm stuck or I'm approaching something new, is that if you have to look at things from the outside in and look at your, whatever it is you're trying to do from the consumer's perspective. And that usually helps to clear the air of a lot of things that you could do, might do, we've already been doing this, maybe we'll do that, you know, 10 more times of that or something. Consumers clear that fog because a lot of times they don't care about your operational improvements. That's your problem on the inside. But the thing that I need, the thing that moves the needle for me looks like this. And so really cultivating the ability to step outside of your circumstance and really look at this from a consumer perspective, whether it's simple things like reading the comment boxes, if you have access to that, asking, you know, convening focus groups, informal focus groups. Um, you know, I mentioned Zappos, what they do with that time spent on the phone, because none of us that shop with Zappos ever call them. They stop and they start asking you questions about your life. I got caught in one of those loops recently. I had to call them for something I couldn't do online. And he just wanted to chat and chat and chat and chat and talk about shoes and what did I like about shoes and what are my favorite shoes and, you know, how they fit into my life. Like it was, it was a chance to hear from someone real and it really clarifies things and not only gives you a new perspective, but also gives you ammunition to take back into your organization, which is the premise of what we're talking about. How do you now become that change agent? Well, you can't argue with a customer who's saying this works for me or this mm -hmm. is terrible for me. Bringing that voice into the company is something that gets lost. And it takes people who are geeky about really understanding that outside-in perspective to be that voice for the customer. That can be the toehold you need to start convincing a company that they really do need to think about this a little bit differently. Absolutely. I have a follow-up question for you on this, this kind of, um, you know, brand development and, and engaging with customers. So let's say you're in a, you know, internal support function and, and your customers are basically other employees. Um, of course, you know, what you're doing in, in, in a way touches external customers as well. So say you want to do that same thing and you're in that internal support function. Who do you need to talk to? Do you need to talk to, you know, that employee audience? Do you need to do some investigation of how this is touching external folks? We find we, we at APQC have a lot of folks who are in that kind of scenario. So what would you recommend for them? Yeah, I think that you start with as grassroots and scrappy a method as you can before you take it to someone to ask about something more formal, like convening a session where people have to stop their work and Come, you know, I mean, you're, you're sort of asking, it's costing the company something to do that. If you can just, you know, start having this conversation with people around you, send an email out to a team that you work with and say, hey, I just appreciate jumping on the phone with you. And I think the way to start the toe in the water way is to start gathering those little nuggets. And if you can have five of those conversations with your internal customer, 
and you start to see themes, you know, it starts to appear as these nuggets start to come. Some are just outliers. Some are, you know, things that, that really can't be changed or it's one person's very, very specific issue. But if you have enough conversations, you'll start to, you know, you'll start to see some themes. And then at that point, I would consolidate that into a, into a, um, a proposal that you could take back, say, to your manager and say, hey, I talked to 10 people, talked to five people, whatever it is this is something that seems to be bubbling up. And I think I have a way and, you know, not just throw the problem on the table. And I think I've got an idea of how we might approach this, but what I still need is maybe talking to 10 more people or 25 mm-hmm. more people or bringing this other department in. And so I think you just have to kind of chip away at it as opposed to, you know, just starting with a big conversation with your boss about convening a retreat to talk about this problem, you know, just, just start gathering the information, just start, you know, chipping away. And if it takes, you know, buying a round of drinks for your friends after work or convening a Zoom or buying a pizza or whatever it is, you know, that may be a way to get going. Absolutely. And I would say to our listeners, never underestimate the power of just buying people a pizza. It definitely works. (laughs) I bought a lot of pizzas in my day. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So the next question I wanted to ask you is, how do you scale this mindset? So not just your project, your cool idea, you know, that you wanted to do, but this, this way of thinking and this way of approaching change, I guess, essentially in an organization across, you know, your team, your department, maybe even the whole company. Yeah, I mean, look, change is always going to polarize a company. It's one of those things that's, I, I think it, it falls into the category of there are two kinds of people. There are people who embrace change and love it and thrive on it and need it. And there are people who are terrified and really rely on a sense of normalcy and consistency. And so it's really, a, it's a, it's a, it's a psychological divide in some ways when you get groups of people together. So inherently, anytime you start to talk about change in an organization, people pull to one side or the other. Most people are, are not indifferent in the middle. They are one side or the other. So right, right there, right there, you've got you know sort of this battlefield set up. You've got um, you know the politics of that set up. And I think, you know, within your own space, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the two different levels that you're asking about. I think one is you take control of what you can in your space, you know, whether it's your team, your work group, whatever that you have under your span of control to just try and model and create a safe space for that kind of innovation to happen. So you take as, as much control as you can where you can. That's not the entire organization, but I'll touch on that in a second. Um, you know, an example is when I was at Cirque, um, and you know, Cirque's a wildly creative place. And in some ways that's great and exciting, but at other times it can be stifling because it's so, you know, what do you do next? What do you do next for an encore after you've wrapped buildings and you've jumped backwards off of, you know, decks 40 feet in the air? So I remember distinctly when I first came into the group, I had about 70 people working for me. And when I'd get them together, when we were brainstorming new campaigns, say, for a show or some new promotion we wanted to do. And, you know, I had to set a tone with the group that it was safe to brainstorm wildly. And at first it was a little difficult. It's not because they weren't inherently creative themselves, but because the environment hadn't been really responsive to just wild brainstorming and bad ideas and you'd get punished for it. Mm. And so you have to, um, 
you have to model the behavior that says it's okay for us to dream here a little bit. We'll figure it, we'll, we'll make it make sense later. We can diverge as widely as we want to so we can find it and then we'll figure out the logical part of it. And so if I ever found myself in situations, brainstorming situations where, you know, you're getting the crickets and no one's talking and it's that painful, long, blank, whiteboard moment, I'd go out of my way to put the worst idea I could on the board. You know, um, we're talking about some new promotion in Vegas. I'd say, okay, let's get a herd of elephants and let's paint them purple and let's put lights on their back and let's, you know, draw our name on it. I'm going to put elephants down Las Vegas Boulevard on the board. If nobody else has an idea, we're going with this. So, you know, go for it, right? And they started to see that I could be self-effacing about it. I'm usually just as a personality, I'm, I'm not afraid of putting a bad idea on the table and getting the first one out there so you can skewer it or doing the straw man thing. I don't have my ego tied up in that. If it's, if it's in service to getting the best work and getting the conversation going, I will throw myself out there. So by putting a really bad idea on the table and saying, okay, going once, going twice, this is gonna be the new marketing campaign unless someone else has an idea. And sort of seeing that I'm not afraid to be wrong or stupid or ask a dumb question, it sort of sets the tone with the team to do the same thing. And then you're laughing and then people are kind of loose and then they know if they say something really stupid, I'm gonna laugh at them or throw an eraser at them. And you know, you just have to be the one to do it for them. They won't, so many people have been burned in environments where, where a boss says, it's okay to make mistakes here. It's okay to, you know, they, they sort of coax you out of your hole and then you do it and then you get slapped. Right. And so you have to maintain that. So that's the first level, I think in your immediate environment do that. Inside the organization, it gets tougher because again, in that polarization with change, there's their issues. In particular, one that I've bumped into a lot is the fact that um, when you've got that split and there's a new, new thing happening, the budget to support that comes out of someone else's budget mm -hmm. usually. Someone else's workaday project, someone else's plumbing project, some basic operational thing gets defunded so that you can afford to do this new thing. And it creates resentment. It creates even more polarization. And so when you're doing this, you have to make sure that you're rewarding both sides, that you're not penalizing people who are just running the mm -hmm. business and create this tyranny around the new, new idea. Because what the resentment that starts to happen is that people who are generators, and that's, you know, I sort of fall into that bucket. I'm, you know, I just sort of spout ideas all day long. There's a tyranny to that. And we always get a lot of attention and, oh, Elma's so creative and Elma's got such good ideas. And all of a sudden I'm the fair haired one in the discussion and someone who's just not wired that way, but who's fantastic at keeping the trains running on time gets no love in the organization. And so at the topmost level, there are a couple of things that have to happen. You have to balance that. You have to make sure that everybody understands the value of the new things that are happening and that we still appreciate this other piece of the business. Um, and then you have to, you know, within that, make sure that um, everyone's sort of coming along and getting their benefit from, from whatever the thing is that's new. Um, an example, you know, when I was building the Dilbert Zone way back in the day, the earliest, earliest days of the internet, um, I was building this website um, for this comic strip inside of a 50-year-old licensing and, and newspaper syndication organization. So they had spent most of their lives 
selling peanuts comic they own peanuts as well um the peanuts comic strip selling that to newspapers that was the primary business and then eventually they got into licensing and when the internet happened this was a new new thing a new publishing thing i remember my boss asked me well who's going to pay us if we put our strips up does the internet pay us and it's like no no we're just, you know it, it's not a place it's not like aol it's not prodigy it's it's a, it's a highway system and we're just gonna build a little stand on the side of the road on this highway system. And so we were doing advertising stuff and we were selling merchandise with they, which they'd never done. We were hearing from customers directly in a way we never had. Um, and I had to walk the halls daily for weeks. It never got sold in once. It got sold in a hundred times because we sold it in the first time. I had a sponsor, we sort of, you know, all, all guns ahead, um, you know, we were ready to kind of go off on this mission and every week something would snap back, whether it was mm -hmm. an existing customer, like a newspaper who thought they automatically had rights to digital, but they didn't. And me having to step into that longstanding relationship and say, no, we have the rights to digital, you have print rights. And then you'd sort of make some progress and then three steps forward, two steps back. So I was selling that thing every single day until maybe I'd say three months in, six months in, and we were actually generating revenue. We actually had fans. It was actually sort of smoothly running, but every day there was a reason to go, wait, why are we doing this? And now it's bumped into this other thing, right? So you're kind of constantly being that kind of change agent is, is a, is a full-time job to just really be the one to constantly explain it, constantly walk the halls, constantly have the meetings to explain what the new thing is. And then even in success, people can be resentful, mm. you know? So now this thing's working. So first it was, I was trying to kill it. Now it's working. How is this gonna continue to make what I do look bad? So you can't take the human factors out of it. So I think it gets intensely complicated when you get to the larger organization and trying to cascade it. But at the end of the day, if you can create wins in your space or create projects or things that are proof points that, you, that are hard to ignore, you can show those to the larger organization. I think it makes it easier for the next one, but, but always think about some kind of outcome or some kind of proof point or some kind of metric that you can use to prove that this mm. thing is working. Not just a good idea to waste time and do something fun. You always have to think about that piece. And once you have it, you can you know, take the next step and the next step and start to expand. Yeah, absolutely. And I love those, all these examples that you're sharing. It makes it so real. And um, I can just imagine you walking down the halls and, and having to sell this idea over and over again. I think that's, that's a, you know, that's a part of this that people don't think about. It's like, oh, once I get the okay for the, the project, like then we're good, right? No, maybe not. We're good. So my last question for you is, how do you foster entrepreneurship in a very traditional very hierarchical <laughs> culture. And I ask this because, um, you know, not naming any names, but definitely some of the, the folks in our audience are, are working at these kinds of organizations, whether those are mega, mega corporations, big, old companies and government organizations. They're in these scenarios where this idea feels almost impossible. Is it impossible? Well, the short answer is that it sometimes is impossible. Um, you know, having been a change agent over and over and over again, I could say my hit rate's about 50-50. 
um, you know, for as much at, for every Dilbert um, that has worked and, you know, not only had its own successes, but then fueled other parts of the business and, you know, was used as a playbook to help grow that brand. So it was just, you know, it's expanded and rolled and cascaded. Um, I still love that project because it was so greenfield and because we ultimately were creating things from scratch. It was a lot of fun in those days and it worked. So that's incredibly satisfying. At the same time, you know, I was at the Los Angeles Times in the 90s as newspapers were, you know, really starting to hit the, hit the decline because of the internet. And I was there to be a change agent. I was there to help them kind of think differently about the future and kind of revive the business. And that old guard thing you're describing really just ate the conversation. I mean, I remember being in discussions in executive closed door conversations about, you know, the declines in, in readership, the declines in subscriptions. I mean, it was something that was happening to every newspaper in the world. It wasn't just us. And I remember distinctly one day saying, well, shouldn't we have a scenario plan or have a conversation, have a strategy session and sort of pretend that the printing plant blew up last night, you know, and now we are a digital only thing. There is no paper. There's no paper product. We are digital. What would that look like? And, and I'm telling you, I was told to just shut up and stop talking. Like we're not even going to have that conversation. And I said, well, I'm not advocating, you know, that we blow up the plant. I'm not advocating. We just stop the print business. I'm just saying, you know, we should have a conversation about what it would look like so that we're, you know, thinking through the different possibilities. And literally I was just told we're not having that conversation shut up. And you can imagine then that all the other things that were happening, you know, that strategy of just putting your head in the sand and pretending this isn't going to happen didn't work. And, you know, we kind of now know the rest of the history of the paper continued to go down. It was purchased by Tribune. It's never been the same. It's now in the hands of someone who's more, who has more of a philanthropic view about really promoting journalism. And so hopefully it will be in better hands, but it went through all these, it was just declining as a core business at that point. So the short, sad answer is that, you know, if someone is sort of seeing this change that needs to happen and you feel like you're stuck in a place that's just not going to be responsive, you might be outnumbered. It is absolutely true that in that particular moment, you might be outnumbered. Now, the upside is that, you know, recognizing that and sort of not wasting your time, banging your head into the wall, trying to, trying to fix something may be a good idea. But now we're starting to slip over into another category where you think about entrepreneurship, where maybe that company will never, ever, ever change that thing. But a significant number of companies start, new companies start by someone seeing a problem inside the company they were working for, they quit, they start a business, and they take that company with them as their client to fix it because there was no appetite to change the company, but I now can do this for you better. I'm from the outside in. I see the solution. And most companies, I mean, we, we, we also kind of romanticize what entrepreneurship is about sometimes and thinking that, again, it's this completely invented, completely new thing. The founder is 12 years old and is a genius. <laughs> you know, like we, we, we've sort of built that up into being something that's, that's, um, that's just not true. Most companies are founded by middle-aged people who saw something inside their company and saw an opportunity to fix it there and fix it in 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 other places. And thus, and then and just start your business just like that. So maybe that's the itch. And it, and it, 
it's a little scarier for sure because you're talking about maybe quitting your job you're starting about you're thinking about kind of putting it all on the line but you could have that conversation with your company before you leave you could start to say you know what if i created this would you be my first customer that gives you a base to start the business and it's not nearly as scary you de-risk the whole thing for yourself so you know i i think when you you know but coming back to your question about how you deal with if, if you really have an idea and there's something that needs to change inside a place that's particularly tough i think one thing that i've um I, I think is part of the issue, and it may not be specifically these two roles, but there's a gap in thinking between the CFO side of the house and the CMO side of the house. Mm. And typically, you know, a lot of the corporate innovation, corporate strategy, um, ventures work happens in the financial organization, but they're never tasked with or obligated to have a conversation with the marketing side of the house that really understands how how, how customers and consumers think, how the market is moving. And when you leave ventures just in that financial spreadsheet space without rounding it out with the real conversation on the ground about what customers believe, what they think about your brand, what permission they'll, they'll give you to do other things, you're only using half of your your brain. And so I think, you know, again, it's not necessarily marching into both of their, their offices and making them hold hands, but I think one way to start to knit things together, you know, again, even with a small project deep in the organization, is to bring those two things together. I've got this idea to make it better. Let me figure also figure out ways to quantify mm -hmm. it. Let me also validate it with people who know customers and, you know, talk to them, talk to our salespeople. If I have an idea, talk to our salespeople about this new feature I'm thinking about. Have you heard that? Have you heard clients say mm -hmm. that? You know, try to be as horizontal and kind of business plan-y in your thinking about that new thing and try and cover all the bases. Here's the qualitative benefit we're going to get. Here's the quantitative benefit. And here's how we're going to measure it. And so I think, again, if you do that in small ways, those can either mature into bigger programs or just become proof points. And if it only gets so far, let's say you get the first layer done, but you can't get it up through your next level of management. Now you've got a story to tell when you go to your next place. Because again, going back to my first point, <laughs> it, it could be a lost cause in the space that you are. I mean, I think most companies are caught in their own trap and caught in their own you know, tar pits when it comes to this kind of stuff, you may need to leave. But the good news is you'll leave with a case study that you can show someone at your next company to show how well you come up with these ideas and how well you put them into motion. So it's never wasted in that regard. Absolutely. I really appreciate you keeping it real on this last point. You know, <laughs> um, I think a lot of folks will say, oh, you know, you could do it if you just really, 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 really try. Um, mm -hmm. So I've, I love that. Remember the scene in Jaws where they're showing the scars, they're in the hell of the boat overnight and they're drinking and they're showing the scars from the shark bites. And, you know, if, if, if we were sitting together, I could, uh, I could, I could lift my, you know, roll up my pants leg and show you some of the bite marks on my legs. <laughs> this has not gone well. And that's, okay. but you know, you, you, you learn to spot it better. That's the other, mm. I think, instinct you get when you uh, go into places. Um, my husband has a great uh, way of putting this that I think really sums it up, that a lot of places have the appetite for change, but not the stomach mm. for change. 
And I think that's most companies. I think that's 75% of companies. So if, if, you know, most of us are dealing with those companies and trying to deal with it, again, you do as much as you can, you make as much change as you can, and then try and seek out those either emerging companies or really ambitious, mature companies who live to do the new thing, who live to stay on the edge. You just might need a different environment for the energy that you have. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Alma. Absolutely. This was great. Happy to be here. Well, once again, I'm Mercy Harper. Thanks for listening to this APQC podcast. To learn more about our research, please visit apqc.org. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.